Hey, this is Jay Watts, and welcome to the Human Things Podcast. Welcome to the next episode of the Human Things Podcast. I'm Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. Today, I'll be joined by my friend Kristen Polo from Protect Life Michigan. They just got through fighting unsuccessfully the passing of Proposal 3 in Michigan that that took abortion rights that were lost when trigger laws came into effect in Michigan and placed them within the state constitution. But I wanted to talk to Kristen because in the effort to fight that, her organization went out to thousands and thousands of doors, knocked on doors and talked to people about the issue of abortion, which means right now she's a subject matter expert on what it means to talk to people about abortion. She has been anyway. She's led an organization where she deals with students in the state of Michigan and in student clubs and the impact they can have on their community and on their universities. She's active throughout the entire state of Michigan. She's, she's, a, she's just a wonderful human being in that regard, committed, passionate, organized, intelligent. But at this moment, she also has access to an experience that the rest of us just don't have. So Kristen Polo will be joining us later. I promised some stupidity, and I'm going to share as much as I can the stupidity that can go through my head sometimes, or the things that I get fascinated with. I'd mentioned the running zombies before. Last night, as I'm in you know, my life just is crazy as far as the different writing projects I'm working on and the different things I'm trying to get organized. And so I, I try to discipline your mind. And somehow last night I got drawn into a, in a discussion or argument in this sense or, or trying to sort out this question. All right. So who had the worst day ever or protracted time period in a row, like a day in movie history? And, and, and one of the things, now getting away from the, like the truly tragic stuff, we're talking about the, the three people that we've come down to over the course of my talking about these things with different people is Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. I, I just a, I mean, and the judgment here is who woke up the next day feeling the worst? When all of this was over, who was just the most sore, most miserable, hated the day that they just got through? Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of the, the contestants for that. Another one is... Um, John McClane and Die Hard, that the next day after that must have been miserable for him. And then the third one is Luke Skywalker in Empire Strikes Back, which, by the way, I contend he's the winner. Because even though we, if we go through all the physical things that everybody went through, I mean, Indiana Jones got shot. He had the fight with the, the Nazi boxer, whoever the guy was around the plane that was just a, a brutal fight, dropped into the Well of Souls, dragged behind a car that he had to crawl up under. Just a, a trem- and then whatever happened with the submarine that I still ha- still don't understand what that was all about. It's like he dives in, climbs on a submarine. It looks as if the submarine is submerging, and somehow he's fine. I don't understand what happened all there either. But enough happened, and then at the end, of course, he goes to the experience of the wrath, the experience of the wrath of God destroying all the Nazis while he's tied up. Whatever happened to that moment, it was enough that it burned the bindings that he was tied up with off of him. So he had a bad day. Right, but at least Indiana Jones ended up with the girl at the end of that movie, and it, even though he didn't get the the arc where he wanted to get to, he, it, it didn't end up with the Nazis. So there was that some success, some some measured success for Indiana Jones and his endeavors. John McClane again, I think he actually had a worse day than Indiana Jones, just because the idea of walking across broken glass barefoot is just the worst imaginable thing I can think of. Because it's not just the moment; it's all the rest of the day that you have to deal with. And, and 
all the fights and all the pounding that he took throughout all the explosions uh, that we know. I think I think I'd read that the explosions on set of that actually ended up permanently hurting Bruce Willis's ears and and then and, but um so all of the things that he went through on that set and all the things that all the things that John McClane goes through during the course of that day is just a brutal day. Obviously, you see it when he walks in at the end of the movie and he's got the gun taped to his back and all of that. But at least he ends up with the girl, right? Again, he ends up with some measure of success. He stopped everything. So here's why I say Luke is the worst, and then we'll get on to more important things, because Luke failed to finish his training because he had visions of his friends dying. He flies across whatever to, to a different system. He lands uh, in Cloud City. He, he ends up having to confront Vader. He gets his hand cut off. He gets, remember, he gets pelted by just these huge, massive boxes, humiliated in this fight. Uh, and then he leaps off of that thing, goes down the tube, and he goes scraping through those tubes until he lands finally at where the trash is dumped out and is hanging from it and his legs hit it. Just, I mean, the whole thing is just a miserable experience. And he loses. So that's the difference for me is that because it always hurts worse when you lose. I talk about that with athletes all the time when, I, when we work in lacrosse. One of the things I tell people who, who are dealing with opponents who are whining about what just happened, is just tell them, oh, I get it, it always hurts worse when you lose. It does. It always hurts worse when you're on the losing end. Look at the NFL. Somebody makes a play, they don't get up and limp and shed. They, they're jumping, they're, pump, they're pumped, they're excited. Somebody does something stupid, suddenly they're limping off the field. They just got burned, they got embarrassed. They're limping off the field. Every injury is showing. It's all the excuse for what just happened. It always hurts worse when you lose. And Luke lost. All across the board and everything, is, including finding out his mortal enemy who killed his mentor, even though the mentor relationship was so, was his dad. I am your father. No! No! Which is a lot to deal with. So, Luke had the worst day, in my opinion. If you have somebody else, feel free to, to hit at me somewhere and tell me that, that I'm wrong. I don't really care that much, but it is just kind of thing that I'm interested in talking about. So let's get to something slightly more serious from there. Uh, and this goes back, happened a while ago, a long while ago, where Pink went on her rant after Roe v. Wade fell, and she was ripping on the idea of pro-lifers listening to her music. And she lumps people who, who don't like abortion in with, with racists and misogynists. It's a lovely little hit piece that she did on Twitter there. But what's interesting thing about this was it came back up again in my feed recently. And even though everybody that I was looking at the comments or responses to it acknowledged that this was old news, the emotion that was brought up by it was new. It was, it was revisiting their anger. And, and what I want, there's two things that I think are interesting about this. Number one is that the normal response that we have when people express that they don't like pro-lifers enjoying whatever it is that they've done, or when people in the public speak out about it. And, and there's a tremendous list of people since the fall of Roe v. Wade that have come out as celebrities and, and supported Roe v. Wade and the abortion, uh, access to abortion and abortion rights, and at the same time have, 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 have idea, the idea that pro-lifers exist is somehow dangerous for society and the way that they couch it. Not all of them to the extreme that Pink did, but the list concludes people like Halsey, Meghan Markle, uh, Olivia Rodrigo, Kendall Jenner, Jennifer Lopez, Kendrick Lamar, Billie Eilish, Chris Evans, Lady Gaga, John Legend, Mark Ruffalo. By the way, none of these people are people all that important in my life. And, and it's interesting, though, what I, what I looked at when I was looking at the responses for people who disagree with them, there was a couple of different ways to respond. One of them was who, uh, particularly when Pink 
was saying, don't listen to my music anymore, which I think is just ridiculous, right? Don't, don't, if you're pro-life or misogynistic or racist, okay, thanks for lumping all those things together. If you're those things, don't listen to my music anymore. And, and I looked at some of the responses and I, and I think that there's a better response to everybody saying, who are you? I don't even know who you are because she left a follow-up tweet that you may, you old white men may not know who, who I am, but my kids do. I actually went to my kids when she said that. And I said, just out of curiosity, do you guys listen to Pink and all of my kids? Yeah, not really. I mean, there was nothing. They're not, she's not somebody that's super relevant anyway. So this, but, but the response was, I thought, interesting when people would say, I don't know who she is, or I don't like your music, or you're terrible anyway, or done, or whatever. Because I have a different response to these sorts of things. Uh, mine is just when somebody says, you know, I, I would appreciate you not, li- if you're going to be this way, I'd appreciate you not listening to my music, watching my movies, whatever. It's just, no, I'm fine. You know, I'll, I'll listen to what I want. I'll watch what I want. You see, you misunderstand the relationship that we have. You seem to think that you in some way influence me, which you don't, or that because of your success in your area, your opinion on this issue has some particular importance to me, which it isn't, or any number of ways that you think what you're doing. So for me, you just don't really matter in that way. I may like your movies, and if I like your movies, I really don't care what you say in public. I'm going to keep watching your movies. I just don't care, right? I, I may listen to your music. I don't know. I think I probably have two pink songs on my phone over the years that we've gotten uh, that my family may have bought. I don't know. I haven't checked. But when she said delete, delete my songs, no, not really, because we have a different kind of a relationship, right? You went and sold your music to the marketplace. That's what you did. Right? You didn't keep it private. You didn't own it on your own. You didn't. You went and sold it. And then I, at some point in my life, apparently, because I think I do have a couple of pink songs on my phone. At some point, like somebody in my family bought it and I probably paid for it no matter who bought it because that's just the way it works in my family. So I bought it. You sold it. I bought it. If I want to listen to it, I'm going to listen to it. I don't really care what you think about that. As a matter of fact, I may actually make like a haterade playlist of the people who come out and tell me that I shouldn't listen to their music because they disagree with what I think and then listen to it while I'm writing articles or doing or prepping for talks or whatever just so I can say, you know, the, the, the tears of the people who hate me flow through my work. I love it. So the, the idea of being able to just say, no, thank you. I'm just not interested in your opinion on, on what I listen to or what I do. That's not the nature of our relationship. And I think that that should be easier for us. I don't think it's necessary for us to tell every celebrity that runs out and says that they disagree with us, that we hate them. We don't like their, their stuff. We don't value what they do. I'm much more comfortable just saying, I may like you or I may not like you. I'm not the biggest Pink fan, apparently, but maybe there's a song there I like to listen to. I'll find out. But if I like it, I'm going to listen to it whether you like me listen to it or not. I don't really care what you think about it. Your, your opinion of my listening to it just doesn't cross into my ear. But here's something I realized while I was thinking this through. Because I don't know all these people, but I did talk to my kids. And they, they're not big. They know who Pink is, but they don't care one way or another about her. But when I talk to them about people like Halsey or Olivia Rodrigo or Billie Eilish, these are people that they actually listen to. These are people that they like their music. And I said, does it bother you? Does it bother you that they're like that? Now, my college-age kids, eh, I knew it. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not surprised when celebrities are pro-choice or, or, when they're, or even when they insult other areas of belief that we have as a family or, or things that I believe. So I'm not surprised by that. Both all of my kids, so this isn't a shock. We know, right? We know that the music industry, we know that the movie industry, we know that the television industry, we know that all of these people are largely pro-choice people. We get it. They say it all the time. So it's not shocking when they are. It's actually more shocking when somebody has the courage of their convictions to come out and say, I don't agree with that. Uh, It gives the illusion 
that the pro-choice position is more the default position than it is. The overwhelming majority of people in this country want limits on abortion to some when you look at the, the, the way that they're polled. If you get past, do you support Roe v. Wade? A lot of people, I think somewhere, usually is always somewhere between 60 to 66% of people say, yeah, I support Roe v. Wade. But then if you actually told them what was in Roe v. Wade and asked you to support that, they would say no. They, they want meaningful restrictions, which was not in Roe v. Wade, Doe versus Bolton, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So the overwhelming majority of people aren't polarized on this issue to that extent, right? But because these people who control the microphone are, and they are so outspoken, it can make people who like them feel marginalized. So I ask my kids, does it, does it in some way make you feel or, or does it odd to have somebody that you like take that position? My two older kids, no, they don't really care. Uh, they just write it off and shrug it off. And, and they're much more like me. I'll, I'll listen to what I want to listen to. I don't really care what they think about anything. That's not why I go to them. Uh, go, going back to, I remember hearing Douglas Murray recently. Well, not, not recently, actually. It was a couple of years ago. Douglas Murray was talking about things that were going on in an interview. And, and he Ben and Jerry's came up uh, as far as those the, the guys who run Ben and Jerry's ice cream and some of the political statements that they had been making. And Douglas Murray's response was, we come to you for ice cream and nothing else, you dolts. And that's kind of where my kids are, right? I come to you for music and nothing else. And, and that's fine. They, none of my kids and nobody in my family would ever want somebody not to have the freedom to speak. I'm not telling them to shut up. Say, hey, talk about whatever is important to you. I don't care. Go for it. I'm an American. I believe in free speech. I'm all for it. But it just doesn't register with us at all. We're just not interested. I will say that my, my younger daughter was less, it bothered her a little bit, right? And, and here's where I think, I would like to point out something about what somebody like Pink does when they go on these rants and slam people. Uh, for, some, for people who believe in this broad sense of egalitarianism or equality or the things that they like to espouse, and, and, and what I think probably most of them would hate the concept of bullying, um, but that's exactly what you do when you go after people and insult them on that platform. Because who... Who does their message resonate with? Not me, because I don't care. I don't listen to their music. And if I do listen to it, I don't care what they say. So their message will obviously be aimed at people who do care what they think. And specifically at this point, then, people who do care what they think and value their opinion who disagree with them on this issue. And did they go to them and try to convince them? Did they go to them and speak in love? Did they go to them and speak rationally? Did they reach out to the people who value them and think highly of them and say to them, if you like me, I would like you to reconsider your opinions. I'd like to have a dialogue. I'd like to know why you disagree with me. No, they gave them none of that respect. What Pink did for any person out there that actually does like her but disagrees on this was effectively bully them. She came in and said, if you disagree with me on this, I hate you. And imagine how that feels to someone who cares. See, I have the value here. I mean, the, the luxury of not caring. But I don't know. I know that's not true for everybody. Then there are people out there who do care. And so when these people get on these rants, it doesn't bother me that they're using their platform to talk about things that are important to them. That's just freedom of speech. Do it. Knock yourself out. But when they get on these aggressive, hateful rants, it does bother me. It bothers me because they're not engaging in ideas, they're, they're stirring up emotion. And the target of that emotion are people who I would say, in my own estimation, 
who have a, an emotional connection to their work or to the artist to the point that they actually care about what they're saying. So why do you want them to agree with you? Because you're right. You haven't argued that you're right. Because you have the best arguments. You haven't presented any arguments. You want them to break down and agree with you because you've told them if they don't, you hate them and they shouldn't listen to your music. And that is despicable. To take somebody who doesn't agree with you but does value your opinion and try to change their opinion by making them feel like a monster for disagreeing with you, that's despicable. That's low. And everyone should be better than that. So for all of us who don't care, I, you know, I'm, I'm, if you're, by the way, if you're one of those people that gets really worked up and doesn't want to talk to, or doesn't want to listen to their music, have nothing to do with them, I won't have anything to do with That's fine. I'm not telling you what to do. I don't care how you respond. My response is always going to be the same. No, I'm going to listen to and watch whatever I want to listen to and watch. And I don't really care what you think about anything because that's just not the relationship we have. I care about what my wife thinks. I care about what my kids think. I care about what my friends think. You're none of those things. You're, you're just somebody who does, uh, produces a product that I like to buy occasionally. That's fine. Right? We'll, we'll have some relationship there, but it's a transactional relationship. It's a business relationship. And, and I'm just not going to worry too much about what you say. But for your target audience that you're trying to sway with all of these hyperbole and anger and fear-mongering, shame on you. I mean, treat the people who value you better. If you believe that there's people who care about what you think that disagree with you, at least have the respect to reach out to them and try to convince them of your position. Don't be a stupid bully. All right, so that's one thing I wanted to get off my chest because it bothered me when I talked to young people and I found out, yeah, it did bother them a little bit, right? And it didn't change your mind, by the way. They think less of you than they did before. So let's move on from that. Um, the next thing I want to talk about before we bring on Christian, Christian, Kristen, is it goes back to... I was talking to a friend of mine, somebody who I love dearly, who's pro-choice, and we were having a chat one night, and they said to me, she says to me, you have a weird job. You have a strange job. I said, it probably does look that way to you, and in, in the course of the world around me, I guess I do have a weird job, but it's why, why do you think I have a weird job? And it came down to the idea that they see me and what I do is fixated on a particular issue, which I'm sure, sure, I've, I've admitted that, right? I'm fixated on the question of, Love our neighbor as ourselves and who counts as our neighbor. And, and it came up. And then I, I piggyback with another conversation, take, attach that to something else that I'd heard when I was having a conversation with somebody. And they asked me this question, why are you so obsessed with fetuses? I think that's a weird way to understand what I do for a living, an obsession with fetuses. So you seem to, to care more about the fetus than you care about anything else. And so to my friend who said I have a weird job and to this other person that told me I have a weird obsession with fetuses, I responded very similarly to both of them. I'm not obsessed with fetuses at all. I don't sit around and think about fetuses by themselves a lot. It's not something I, I just, I don't have posters or pictures of fetuses all over my house. I don't have models or statues of them. It's just not my life. It's not, it's not if, if you talk to me at any point, I'm going to say, let's talk about fetuses. It's just not what I do. What I have a particular problem with is the way that we treat human beings at the fetal stage of development. So when you ask me, are you obsessed with fetuses? What do you think a fetus is? Okay, a fetus is not a thing in and of itself. It's a development stage that things go through, particularly in this case, we're talking about human beings. So a human fetus, there's not some, it's not some 
field of wild fetuses out there roaming around. They're not some independent creature that exists elsewhere. They're not a thing in and of themselves. It's a development stage that things go through as they grow. And so I'm not obsessed with fetuses. I'm certainly not obsessed with human fetuses. What I am, I would say, obsessed with, if you want to point that point, that use that language, is what we do to them. Because that's what I don't understand. I start every conversation that I have with people when we're trying to find some common ground with, would it be objectively okay for you and I to kill each other? I'm trying to find out if the two of us can agree. Because more or not, when years ago, when I first started this, more often than not, if I went and talked to even a Christian organization, a church or a youth group or a Christian school, almost everybody in there agreed with you. And it made sense. We're going to talk about these issues. So here's how you talk about them better. And over the course of my career, I have found that now I have to spend a little time before we start to have that conversation, making a case just for making a case. I go into places and now the question is, why would I ever want to talk about this? And so that goes back to those questions. Why are you obsessed with the fetus? Why do you want to talk about this issue? Why do you have such a weird job? And so when I ask people, would it be objectively wrong for you and I to kill each other? I'm trying to find out if we have a common moral ground with each other. It's what's called a diagnostic question. I was taught that question by uh, Scott Klusendorf, and, and he and I talked about that before. We get to the, the root of whether you and I agree that there is objective moral standards, values, and accountability that govern our relationships with each other, whether we know each other or not. You can be a complete stranger, and I still have responsibilities and duties to you, objectively speaking. Would it be wrong, objectively, for you and I to kill each other without extreme justification if we just went about the business of killing each other, one of us killing the other? Everybody I've talked to outside of a hand, small handful of people says, yes, that would be wrong. And so the question that we have to get to after that is, then if we both agree it's wrong to kill one of us, Is the fetal human one of us? Is the embryonic human one of us? Because we are killing them. That was one of the things that ultimately, what's the word I'm looking for? It galvanized me a little bit. It, it, it activated me into the pro-life movement when I was a Christian who started to have what I would say pro-life sympathies or pro-life where I was emotionally pro-life or, or I was, I, I doubt if you'd asked me, I would have told you that's what I was. But it was when I started to study what we were doing to them that it changed me. At the time, it was 1.3 million a year. Roughly now, I think we're somewhere around 1 million a year abortions in the United States. I looked at all the different methods that we use to perform abortions. I saw the pictures of what happened to life through the practice of abortion and and. I had to wrestle with that question, are they one of us? And if they are one of us, why are we allowed to do that to them? What we're doing to them is just a matter of statistical data and medical fact. Abortion is, by its very nature, a destructive act. Uh, I think Ronald Dworkin said in his book, Life's Dominion, at the very beginning, talking about abortion and euthanasia, he said there are choices for death. That is... And he was as active a pro-choice writer as ever existed. He believed it was a right that people ought to have, but he acknowledges this is an, a choice for death. So when people say, are you, why are you obsessed with this issue? Well, if, and, and I'll go back. I was talking once to a smaller group at Johnson Ferry Baptist Church, and this gentleman came up to talk to me after I, was, I got done speaking. He asked the similar question, why, why am I supposed to care about all of this? 
And as we were talking, and I was getting frustrated. I was younger at this, and, and at this point, this is many years ago. And I asked him, said, look, the, over there on Terramore Road, and this was the point where McBreer's office, the local abortionist, was on Terramore Road. Over, I said, over there on Terramore Road, there's an abortion facility there all day, every day. People are pulling in that facility and having their offspring killed before they're born. Would you stand up and ask me, should I care or why should I care if it were 10-year-old kids that were being killed in that facility? If every day, all day, you knew there were 10-year-old children being taken to that building and killed because they were, for any number of reasons, all of which could be the same legitimate reasons that somebody would go get an abortion in your mind. It costs too much money. Uh, They they have genetic issues that are difficult to deal with, and they're going to go drag the family's resources towards them in time and energy and effort. I have dreams and aspirations that I want to reach, and this 10-year-old is in my way. Every single one of them, let's let's take all of them and put them on the table. Would it bother you if it were 10-year-olds? He said, well, of course it would. He said, would you want to stop it if it were 10-year-olds? Would you be down there? How would you respond? Would you go there and demand that they stop if it were 10-year-olds and not fetuses? And he said, yeah, I think I probably would. He said, well, now you understand why I think it's so important to engage this issue. Because the arguments that I just gave and the arguments I'm convinced are true tell me that the fetus is one of us like that 10-year-old is, like a 10-year-old, like a two-year-old is. They are just one of us in a different developmental stage. And I can't figure out why we're okay with killing them when we know it's wrong to kill other human beings at other different developmental stages. And the reasons that I'm given are just insufficient. And we can have a whole episode where we go over those reasons uh, and where we start. And I I think we'll break down a little bit by a little bit. And and there's some form of tried out the toddler in there of what I've just done, which is a tool that we use that was taught to me by Greg Kokel and Scott Klusendorf about how to help people to see when they've assumed that the unborn are not human. See, he assumed that the unborn were not one of us. And when I asked that question, if they were one of us, like that 10-year-old or two-year-old, would you care then? He said, yes, I would. It would be different for me if that were the case. So I said, if I can demonstrate to you that the best arguments say that that is the case, would you then be activated? Could we then move on to where you suddenly become one of the members of society that are, as you've coined it, obsessed with fetuses or, or distracted by this issue. So the question then becomes, are they one of us? That's what we have to focus on when we talk about it. And when I said trot out the toddler, uh, that's when we were taught to put our hand on our hip. I said 10-year-olds, but we also do two-year-olds to put a hand on the hip. And I say, if, a if it were two-year-olds being killed at an abortion clinic, would you care? Yes, I would care. Why? Why would we care? Because we shouldn't do that to other human beings. So if the unborn are human in the same way the two-year-olds are, then we shouldn't do that to them as well. So let's get back to the main issue. Every time somebody says to me, are you obsessed with this? Is this taking up too much of your time? And or is this something that you should just let go? Why are you interfering? There's one sign that people were holding up beside pro-life activists or pro-life demonstrators that said, you guys have weird hobbies. All of these accusations, like we're distracted by something trivial or trying to interfere with other people's lives in a way that we shouldn't. When the truth of the matter is, if you were convinced that they were human, like two-year-olds and 10-year-olds, you would be there right, right there with us. The problem is you're not convinced. So let's have that argument. Not insulting people because they care deeply about the value of human life. Let's have an argument about what they are. And don't make the mistake that I just talked about by assuming that they're not and then so assuming wonder why other people are passionate about this or more importantly, why I don't care what you think. Because that's one of the hardest things about getting people activated or getting motivated. Here's something that I think is interesting. Um, I got this from Reggie Jackson of all people. When I was younger, 
I was watching Reggie Jackson, the baseball player. That's so long ago that many people audience probably have no idea who he was. He was Mr. October, one of the greatest clutch players in the championship time. He wasn't, you know, Reggie Jackson's numbers during the course of the season weren't the greatest ever, but man, Reggie Jackson came through when you needed him to come through in clutch moments. So he got the name Mr. October. And they were, and he was also brash and outspoken. And they were doing an interview with them. And, and, and they said, does it bother you that so many people hate you? Does it bother you that so many people dislike you? And, and he gave an answer that I remember hearing as a child that still lives with me today. He said, here's how I understand it. A third of the people out there are going to love you no matter what you do. A third of the people out there are going to hate you no matter what you do. And the other third, they're just waiting to see what you're going to do. So you can't be bothered that people hate you because no matter what you do, people will hate you. And just as a rule, it's just about a third. Just imagine that a third of the population is just going to hate you no matter what you do. That's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to grasp because especially in today where we worry about what other people think. I was speaking at a school in Illinois one time. And as I was speaking, I said, I don't care what y'all think about me. And the teacher came up to me later and she said, do you know what the hardest thing for that, that room to process? It wasn't your arguments against abortion that was difficult for them processed. It was probably the idea that you said, I genuinely don't care what you think. I've actually had students stand up and say, how can you not care what you think, what we think of you, whether we like you or not? How can that just not matter to you at all? And I responded to them, what kind of life would I have if it did? How awful would my life be if I came and spoke at your school and then I went back to my hotel and sat around wringing my hands, hoping that a bunch of 16 year olds liked me? That would be a weird way for me to live. Now, what I have to determine is not whether what I have to say is popular, because I have to recognize some people are going to love the message and some people are going to hate the message and some people are just going to listen to the message and try to figure out what they think about it. And the more people like you, the more people hate you. I like that fact that the way that he broke it down, it just goes together. And then the bigger group though, that you have the, the ability to convince otherwise, because that other third is just waiting to hear what it is you're trying to tell them and what it is that you're saying and what to think about what you're presenting. And so that's an important thing in all of this, as we talked about, as I mentioned earlier for my kids, as they process the idea of some, particularly my youngest, that some person that they admire and look up to doesn't like them because of the things that they believe. Or when I talk to people who say you have a weird job, how could you go out and do this? And I talk about being activated means that you go out and you talk about the things that are important. If the unborn are one of us, then this is a hugely morally important issue. One of the greatest issues the world has ever seen. And so it has to be talked about whether people like me or not and have to be willing to embrace the idea that you're going to be hated when you go out and do it. Because why do we care about this at all? Because we are convinced that the unborn are one of us. And if I ask you that question, would it be wrong for you and I to kill each other? and you say, yes, then now we have to get into the business of discussing why it is you think they're not one of us, and I think that they are. And which one of our arguments most lines up with the common human experience that we have. So now we're bringing on Kristen Polo from Protect Life Michigan to talk about all of the things that they went through in fighting Proposal 3 and what she learned in all of her dialogue and talking to people. Right now, joining us is Kristen Polo from Protect Life Michigan, the director, executive director of Protect Life Michigan. I, I want to bring her on for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first reason is because she's a friend, 
And I will owe her for the rest of my life for introducing me to crack fries. We're now called cosmic fries, but but because we're- Keep it PC, Jay. Being, being more PC, they will forever for me be crack fries, which I think, I know, I know, I know drug addiction is a terrible thing. So I know that there's a sense that we don't want to get involved in that and make light of it. But they're addictive, man. I mean, I'm so angry that I can't get anyone this part of the country to make those. And, and I've, I've spent time actually trying to recreate the experience and I can't do it. So um, the, the more important reason I want to bring you in, and, I, and, and I, I'm dead serious about what I'm about to say, which is a weird way expression for a pro-life thing. So uh, what I'm, I'm absolutely serious about this right now to me. What you represent because of what you went through in, in, in trying to defeat Prop 3 in Michigan, uh, you are a, a subject matter expert on talking to people about abortion in a way almost nobody else is because you had this intensive effort to go out in the community and talk to people who we don't normally talk to. For most of us, we talk to people on college campuses, we talk to people at high schools, we talk to people in settings where the audience is oftentimes self-selected, right? And that's an important right. thing. When you're talking to a self-selected audience, you're, there's a dynamic at play where it can be difficult to, to translate what you're experiencing with them to everyone, to like the common general population that isn't engaging this issue all of the time. And because of what yeah. you did, you now, have an experience that most of us don't have. And I think that's incredibly valuable. So that's why I called you up and said, I actually, for the audience, that you don't know, as much as I love Alicia Wood, and she's going to come back, hopefully, we've already talked about having her back as a regular guest. I'm, I'm doing that to everyone. If, if I'm telling everyone, you're going to be regular. You're going to come back often. So be ready for that. You're coming back. Well, we'll see how it goes. We'll see. <laughs> if you like me, maybe. Or like, no, yeah. Or if you like the experience, right? But... But I wanted you first because of that. Originally, I called you and we just couldn't work the schedule out. That's how important I think the work that you guys did and on, on fighting Prop 3 is because it's more than just the, the political aspects of it. There was, a, there was an engagement with the community that, that just doesn't happen all the time for people in the area mm -hmm. where you work. And so yeah. you have the opportunity now to share the three things that are most important as a subject matter expert on reaching people and talking to them in a way that the rest of us don't experience. Well, thanks, Jay. Well, you know, this last year was really eye-opening. I learned a lot of lessons. It was the most challenging year of my life professionally so far. I think, you know, people who are pro-life cared so deeply about defeating Proposal 3, and we just have been wrecked by the injustice of it passing. And in large part because there was a lot of money pumped into our state from New York and California to push through a constitutional amendment, really to buy a constitutional amendment that the people of Michigan don't even support. And so we had this responsibility to get to as many voters as possible and help them understand what was actually at stake because they were blatantly lied to in just repetitive TV ads saying, if you don't vote yes on this, women will die because they won't be able to get miscarriage treatment. That is how deep and strong the lie was. And that moved a lot of people, understandably. Yeah. If you're, if you're pro-life, you don't want women to die from not being able to have miscarriage management um, and treatment in hospitals from that. 
but that's not what was actually at stake. So we ran a massive door campaign on like a total shoestring budget. It's ridiculous how little money we spent, but we had like 2000 volunteers that were out every single week. We knocked on hundreds of thousands of doors. We talked to 53,000 voters in two months on their doorsteps. And from that, like I said, learned a lot. I think one of the top lessons um, that I have taken away from this and that I think people need to know as these amendments come to their states is that people are not as set in their ways as we often think that they are. This country and this world is so divided right now. That's no surprise to hear someone say that. Um, And I think we often feel as if people are so set in their ways that change is impossible. Uh, But at Protect Life Michigan, I mean, almost every voter we talked to on their doorstep changed their mind and decided to vote no on Proposal 3. Even people who supported abortion would say, this is too far for me. This I I don't support that. I don't want to go there. Um, But even if we can get more specific to the work that Protect Life Michigan does in a regular year, not a campaign season, on campus, 20% of the students that we talk to will admit that we've changed their position right on the spot. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I can't speak to how many of those stick. You know, we hope that it's the majority, mm-hmm. but yeah. we have a message as a movement and as pro-life people that is very influential. It's very persuasive. And, and I can tell you how we frame it. We frame all of this from a human rights perspective. Okay. You know, young people care very deeply about human rights. Okay. And so what we're trying to do is help them to see that abortion is violence, that women deserve better, and that civilized societies don't solve problems by using violence. And when you frame it that way through something that they already care so deeply about, about, they want a world with less discrimination, with less oppression, with less violence. And we're saying you need to be pro-life because that's how you bring that world about it is incredibly winsome. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and prior to this, I'll, when I was doing some lead in before on my own, one of the things that I mentioned is the first thing that I, I, a part of a conversation that I have oftentimes is I ask people, would it be, and you know, this, I, would it be objectively wrong for you and I to kill each other to, to try to get a sense of where the person I am, is talking to. So for me, it's how I get into the conversation. Do, do we begin at the same place? Are you and I at the same place as I start out? Is it objectively wrong for the two of us to kill each other without extreme justification? Do we acknowledge that human beings are the kind of thing that we shouldn't kill? So walk me through then, if you're, if you're having success, 20%. Yeah. And, and that's a big deal. One of the, I think I, years and years ago, I remember hearing someone, I think it was at a Kiwanis talk or something like that, long before I was doing this kind of thing. I was, I was out and trying to be involved in the, the business world as a raising money for people. And one of the guys I heard talking about at this Kiwanis said that you, you, cho- you don't change the culture by changing 100% of the people. He said, actually, you can start a cultural movement by changing the minds of 4%. He said, and, that, and that changes the, our understanding of how we accomplish things. There's this sense of there's this intractable world and we have to shift everybody over in order to get things done. And, and what, the way the guy explained it was, as you said, people will change their minds. We do have people who are encamped on either side who aren't going to change their minds. I think Gregory right. Kirkwell at Stand a Reason once told me that once somebody writes a book on a subject, 
they'll never change their mind on what they wrote on. And then I think there's, there's something there, right? Because the point is you've invested so much in that view and you identify with it so much that it's become who you are and changing them at that point is near impossible. But, but those are not everybody. And in the yeah. middle, what that guy was saying is that there is a group of people who actually sway the way the world and the culture goes, who are a much smaller percentage. And to ultimately start to win them over, the first thing you have to do is win 4%. So if you can change 4%, you can start to make a huge impact because that starts the momentum that changes other people and wins them over to your side. So how yeah. do you guys engage then when you start this conversation? Yeah, I mean, that kind of leads into the second thing that I want to talk about, which is that to win, we have to normalize being anti-abortion. We have to get this message out as far and as wide and as frequently as possible. Um, I, I really am focused on reaching young people because I think it helps normalize being against the violence of abortion and yeah. fighting for a better world. You can do that easily through young people. Um, but, but the lead in that you're talking about, how do we, how do we go about having these conversations? So we're on campus. We do, outside of a campaign season, we're having conversations on campus, we put displays up. And as people walk by, we ask, hey, what do you think about abortion? And we're very intentionally trying to share the truth in a loving and a winsome way. So we have spent a lot of time building or tweaking strategies that other organizations are using um, to see what will work here in Michigan. Uh, so we ask what they think about abortion. We listen to them as they share some of those thoughts. And just like you said, we start trying to build that common ground. Um, Jay, I can tell you're someone who values human rights. You're someone who believes in that. Tell me about that. And, and trying to engage on that common ground. We both agree that civilized societies don't use violence to solve problems. And what's interesting is when you'll when you talk to someone who's pro-choice, I have never, in thousands of conversations with pro-choice people, I have never heard them say anything positive about abortion. They know it's a negative. And I think that gives me as a Christian a lot of hope that like God has just written this on our being, right? That we don't do this. We don't destroy image bearers. And I, I see that present in every person I talk to. I have friends who've worked at Planned Parenthood, and even they will say, I don't like abortion. I would never have, abor have an abortion. They see it as this necessary evil. And I know that's terrible that they would see it as a necessary evil, but that tells us that there's the barrier that we have to get them over isn't that big. They already don't like abortion. They have this natural distaste for it. We just have to prove to them that we can fight for a better world. And that's one of the many reasons I'm so thrilled that Roe v. Wade has been overturned. There are these states now that have restricted abortion, and those states are going to prove to the rest of the country that women can survive and be successful, and we can bring them real solutions. Those states that have ended abortion, legal abortion, are going to be evidence to the rest of the country that we can solve problems without using violence. So these are some of the things that we talk about in these conversations with people and just kind of leading them through. Do you believe in human rights? Who do you think should have human rights? Yeah. And, you know, if, if you say everyone or human beings, those are the two answers we get from people. They'll say everyone should have human rights or human beings should have human rights. Here we're looking at 
a little human being, whether we've got it in our pamphlets or on one of our signs, who has literally been disemboweled, had their arms and legs torn off, we can see that this is a human being like you and I. How do you fit that violence into your worldview that says human rights are for all humans? And that is where we see the greatest number of mind changes when people either have to somehow figure out how they're going to defend violence as someone who supports human rights or like how they fit that into their worldview and they can't do it. And they'll say, you know, I've never really thought of it from this perspective before. I think so many are used to looking at it as like, this is a woman's rights issue, right? This is a bodily autonomy issue. And and we're, we're coming at it from a different perspective that really shakes people's understanding of abortion. Yeah. And in your, what you just said, what, I want to know from you, because I know from me when I talk to people, that when you're engaging people, just off the top of your head, what percentage would you say of the people that you're talking to have ever seriously considered this issue at all? And, and most, I mean, for me, it's a, I mean, I, I will tell people when I have interaction outside of presentations where the audience is self-selected, when I'm on campus and I've been asked to engage in a more public area, and you're in that situation, you're talking about displays. And I, know, and I want to get to in a second, too, I, I, from the language you just used, we're talking about displays that show abortion victim photography and things like that. Correct? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, Sometimes yes. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. And so when we have that opportunity and we're talking to people who have not self-selected themselves to be in an audience where we're discussing this in a more detailed right. place, I find that the overwhelming majority of people, and I mean high, high number of percentage of people, have never thought about this issue at all. They, yeah. they may have a... They, the, the position they hold is almost loosely held. We had that experience when we did the Life is Best videos and we were on the campus of the University of Georgia talking to students. And I was amazed at how little they had reflected. They would come to you and they would say I'm pro-choice because as you said a second ago, there was a sense where they didn't want to either feel like they were restricting the rights of someone else, telling someone else what they could or couldn't okay. do, or there was a sense where they feared what a true pro-life world would look like and that it would cause the deaths of women. So there, there was these two dynamics at play, but there wasn't a serious, I've thought this through. I understand the issue. I've, I've seen everything. And when they were introduced to certain facts, they were, they were remarkably open to the idea of reconsidering what they said. So for you, are you seeing a high percentage of people like that? Absolutely. And that was never made any more clear than it was on the campaign trail when I was at people's doorsteps and like nine out of 10 commercials they were seeing on their TV were about abortion, pushing abortion on them. And and yet still people had not really given this any kind of serious thought. And I think it makes sense because when we talk about abortion, most of what you're hearing is from Planned Parenthood, right? Or like the Democratic Party, who's just saying, this is a woman's right. And we never go beyond that. We never really talk about what is abortion? um, What does it look like? How does it work? What is the impact that it has on the woman and the life that she's carrying? And when you get through to those realities, as I said before, people overwhelmingly reject abortion. They just have this natural distaste for it. Um, And so we often saw people on their doorsteps, they're like, I'm, I'm pro-choice. And when we would ask why, they'd say, I believe, you know, that women, um, if their life is at risk, they should be able to have an abortion. And I'm like, 
that's it. That's your, and overwhelmingly, they would say that was their exception. Not that they believe that abortion should be legal through all nine months of pregnancy, like it now is in Michigan, but that they thought there was this exception. And what I always say to people is, listen, you and I are on the same page. Women should be able to get the medical help that they need to save their lives, right? Like we're not advocating that women should be left to die. If there's some kind of crisis there, we need to do everything we can to save both of those lives. But there's nowhere in this country where it's illegal to, you know, get that kind of help. So the, the level of misinformation that's out there, I think, is having a big influence on what people believe overwhelmingly. Over and over and over again, studies show that people are very much opposed to abortion. And and that's why I haven't lost hope for Michigan or any other state, because I see the distaste they have for it. Unfortunately, in in this one election, $50 million was spent to lie to them. Um, But our message is winsome. and, And we see that every single day in the people that we talk to. My hurdle is figuring out how to scale that. How do we talk to more people and make sure this message gets out to more individuals? Yeah, and, and not letting losses. I just did an article for Christian Research Journal on the, the first eight months, you know, post-Roe and what's going on in the world. And one of the things that's difficult to get a handle on, as you see, because you're, when, you're right, it's, the, the pro-life message has a smaller bandwidth than the national the dialogue mostly because almost everybody is against us in the sense of the music industry is against us. The movie industry is against us. The, uh, the most people who do broadcast news tend to sway towards the, the progressive side or towards the pro-choice side. It's it, you, you go to, I remember when they would do polling and ask people who held pro-choice positions in cities like New York, and they would ask them questions like, do you have any friends who are pro-life? And you would find out that there was these entire communities, including journalists, who didn't know a single person or had no friends that they interacted with in their personal life who held views differently from them. And so there, there is a sense where our message is always going to be somewhat less of the bandwidth of that. And we have outlets. There are places where we get out. And, and I don't, cause I don't like when people say the media is against us cause we're part of the media. I mean, producing this is part of the media. So it's not like we don't have assets or abilities to, to get our message out, but you do have to recognize that our message in the grand scheme of the cultural movement is marginalized because the people who dominate that culture tend to be against us. And I I have actually talked about that a little bit before we got going today as well. One of the things I want to go back to that a couple of things, I think let's talk about two things that I want to touch before we move on to your next point. Uh, One of the ones you said, we've said a couple of times, people tend to naturally be against abortion or natural uh, a response to it tends to be one of what well, that that's not right. And, and one of the places that I saw that most clearly in my life was in, and, and I've mentioned in talks before when I was raising my kids, I didn't raise them to be radical pro-lifers in the sense that from the time they were little kids, I was taking them to marches and showing them the images and, and, and getting them involved. I wasn't putting signs in their hands. As a matter of fact, my kids didn't know what I did for a long time. And they knew where I worked when I worked here, uh, and when I worked at Cobb Pregnancy Services, a development coordinator, they knew that I worked at what's called a pregnancy center. I've mentioned before in several talks that my son thought I sold babies because I would bring home those little like rubber fetuses. And he assumed that that was what I sold. And, and he told somebody at church that, by the way, someone at church asked him, what does your dad do for a living? And his response was, I don't know. I think he sells babies. And I was like, oh, my okay. God, no. Uh, so there was some confusion in my family about what I did because I wasn't 
it just, I figured my position on it was the world's a terrible place in many ways. It's a wonderful place in many ways. It's a terrible place in many ways. And the things that are terrible about it, they're going to find out about sooner or later because yeah. it, the world introduces it all on its own. And so I wanted them to be able to enjoy the aspects of what's wonderful about the world first before they were forced to become familiar with what's terrible about the world. Now getting to my point, <laughs> when I told them, each and every one of them at some point in their life, what abortion was without having spent a lot of time, they were not, there was no groundwork set for them because mm-hmm. I had withheld all of that from them. When I told yeah. them what it was, my kids all had different responses, but two of them cried and, mm-hmm. and one of them just fell silent, completely silent for a while as he was trying to process what it was I was telling him. They, they, they couldn't, there was no lens for which them, for them to understand what we were talking about. And the same was true when I talked to my sister-in-law about when she first talked to our nephews about it, there was a sense where as they were describing what it was, as they got to an age where they felt like it was appropriate, the response was, I don't understand. I, I, do, I don't understand what you're saying. Why would a mom do that? Right. And, and, and Jay, that's the natural reaction to abortion that I think everyone has until they get jaded into believing that this is somehow necessary for the survival of humankind. Yeah, I mean, that yeah. is the lie that is being perpetuated over and over again is that this is necessary for women's survival and success. And we just have to defeat that lie. And again, these states that are ending abortion are going to help defeat that lie. Us getting out there with a pro-life message helps defeat that lie. But everyone at their core has that same natural distaste for abortion. They just end up believing these lies that we have to accept this violence as a necessary evil for the success and survival of women, which, which is, which by is the way, crazy. <laughs> one of the things that drives me nuts about this, and I, and I have said, and I've written a little bit about how part of the problem is the way that pro-lifers have framed the argument as well. And what, and, and what I'm, what, let me get to my point on this. When we say one in four women will have an abortion in their lifetime or one in five, it, it's somewhere between those. It's difficult to lay it down somewhere. It was the last time I saw it was 22 and a half percent, something like that of women will have an abortion in their lifetime. We say that oftentimes as a means to try to encourage people to give money to our causes because we're trying to give them a sense of urgency. One in four women in your life or one in five women in your life will do this during the course of their life. That's how that's how prevalent it is in society. And here's where I say that I think, and the other side says this as well because they're trying to say this is necessary. But here's where I push back on that. If you flip that statistic around, if you tell me that it's necessary for women to be equal, and I tell you that 75 to 80% of women will live their entire life without ever doing this. Right. How is it necessary for their equality if (laughs) 75 to 80% of American women will never do this? They will never choose this. And how is the world going to collapse? In all of societies, we understand it going to cease to be able to function if already yeah. 75 to 80% of women aren't doing this, they act like right. every woman is getting an abortion at some point of her life to protect her future. And it's not true. Most right. women aren't doing it. Now that doesn't yeah. go against their view, which is that we ought to protect it for the people that are, but it right. does push back about against this idea that it's necessary. And, and beyond that, I would say another point 
And this goes back to abolitionist movement in, in Britain when it, you know, we think of, of people um, like William Wilberforce, right, or Thomas Clarkson. We think of these, these Christian men, these Christian people, the Puritan movement, all these people who were involved in this, who were pushing it from a religious perspective. But one, of my, one of my favorite stories in all of that was uh, of Charles James Fox. You, you see in the movie about William Wilberforce, Amazing Grace, he's the one, uh, the older guy who comes over there. He was not Christian. Uh, not a particularly moral guy when you read about him. He was known to be a bit of a scoundrel. And, and at one point, I love that word, by the way, scoundrel. He was, so, uh, so he's a bit of a scoundrel, whatever you want to call him. Uh, and, and so, um, but one of the things I like about him was one of the arguments for not getting rid of slavery at that time was, well, the entire American enterprise that we're, walking, that we're working on over there in the United States is built on slavery and able to profit from it and ultimately, for the, the British Empire to operate the way that it operates, we need slavery. And, and his response was that if, if the British Empire needs slavery, if the American experiment needs slavery, if the world that we live in as it exists today needs slavery to maintain itself, then let this world end. Because it shouldn't be built on something That's so right. evil and unjust. And yeah. so in both senses, I think in one sense we can push back. I, I want to push back into the idea that it's so necessary because right. every woman's getting it. They're not, they're not, yeah. they over, the majority of women are not well, accessing this. And it's a false fix. It doesn't actually solve the problem. So, you know, I talked about this formula that we use to change people's minds talking about human rights, but I've kind of tacked on my own thing to the end of it. When I talk to people, I say, listen, I'm not making the argument that pregnancy is easy or that these aren't incredibly difficult situations. I know that they are. I've been there with friends who've gone through it. But what I'm saying is that women deserve better and that this isn't a real solution. We should do everything that we can for a woman facing an unplanned pregnancy. I'll, I'll go controversial here and say, I think the government has a responsibility. I think our churches do, organizations, individuals. I have a responsibility to help a woman facing an unplanned pregnancy. There is only one thing we should not be able to do to help and that's kill. So let's talk about the root problems here. If she's facing this decision because of a financial crisis or a relationship crisis, let's talk about actually solving that because whether or not the abortion happens, she's still in that situation and that's what we need to work on. And I think that goes back to this lie that so many people have bought into that we have to have this. And you're right, statistically, it's proven that we don't have to. We're, we see that abortion isn't actually solving those root problems. So let's talk about solutions that will and simultaneously end the violence. Let's do both. Yeah, I'm working and I have been working on for the last couple of weeks a post that I've been trying to write. And I've tried to decide whether I wanted to sell it to somebody else or whether I wanted to put it on our website. The, the, the title of it was is that abortion is a failure of our humanity. And, and, and it's making the same points you're making there is that it is, a, it is an effort to get down the road, I guess, in some way fix problems, move on from this. But it, it, it's a failure of our humanity because we're not reaching out or addressing the needs of the people in our community that abortion is supposedly right. solving. It's a way to, it's a, it's a quick reset button, which is why yeah. it's so attractive, right? When, and it's one of the things I just talked to a group about recently when they were asking me questions. Look, it's, it's, it's no doubt there's an attractive 
nature to abortion for a woman in crisis or a family in crisis when 50% right. of the country is telling them, oh yeah, get it done. Right. It's fine. Yeah. You're doing nothing wrong. You go spend a few hundred dollars and you move on with your life and this issue's done. It's over. And and that's why I think as a movement, we, we need to be very careful about, you know, resources are important, but I don't think that resources are ever going to be like the silver bullet or the key that ends this fight. We live in like the richest country in the world, and yet there's still almost a million abortions happening every year in our country. I think resources are an important part of the problem, but I, I hate to say it this way, Jay, I think that in some regards, in the in the mind of someone who's facing a crisis, a five hundred dollar pill is going to always be easier yeah. than labor and delivery and and raising a child or placing one for adoption. Like that is there is this attractiveness to it. Now, of course, we know abortion isn't good for women. It's it it takes a life, yes, but there is that that idea in someone's mind who's facing a crisis why which is why we have to fight for resources yes but we also have to fight to make abortion unthinkable and unlawful it, i think it's this yeah. three-prong approach of unnecessary unthinkable and unlawful yeah and you and i just had it was interesting in a q a recently a, a gentleman passionate christian man who stood up and he was telling me, these people need Jesus. That's what they need. They don't need laws, Jay. They need Jesus. And I said, well, heck yeah, they do need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. I'm with you on that one, man. I'm not going to sit here and argue with you that they don't need Jesus. I'm on your side on that. But the law has a role to play. And, and the reason is if we had a perfectly virtuous society, we wouldn't need laws at all. Laws by their nature are meant to restrict the behavior of those who are determined to do immoral or evil things. If I'm not, if no one's going to do it, we don't have to have a law. We pass laws because we can't convince everybody. That's the reason that we have these laws. We're not going to ever convince everyone abortion is wrong, but we can create a society that rejects it enough so that we can establish standards to the law that then restricts the practice of evil, of evil as much as we can. And that's the best we can do. It's the best we do with all of the that's laws right. that we set up. We can't stop murder we can hopefully limit it as much as possible. We can't stop rape, but we can yeah. limit it as much as possible. And that kind of leads into the second thing I want to talk about, which is that we really do need to work to normalize being anti-abortion. We need to get this message out as far and as wide as frequently as possible, because you kind of pointed to this earlier in something you said we don't have a lot of institutions of power on our side right now, which makes it seem like the normal position is to be in favor of abortion when that's not actually the case. Overwhelmingly, the majority of Americans think that there should be limits on abortion. They have much more conservative beliefs about abortion than these institutions of power that are trying to say like yeah. legal through birth and after paid for by taxpayers, like, you know, have 20 of them, it doesn't matter. People know they don't support that. They don't believe that. So we have, we have an enormous responsibility and weight on our shoulders to normalize being anti-abortion because all of those institutions of power, I'm talking the government, the media, um, the healthcare industry, universities are largely against us. That means we need a grassroots movement of people saying, 
I reject abortion as a solution to an unplanned pregnancy. I reject this violence and discrimination and the oppression that it brings on people. Um, I'm fighting for a better world. We need that message loud and proud to normalize this position because I think that's gonna that's the change that is required in order to win when we don't have those institutions of power on our side. What do you think about that? Yeah, and it, one of the things, I like what you keep saying normalized being anti-abortion because when I first got involved, there was a sense of, I'm not anti-abortion, I'm, I'm pro-life. I, I prefer to be called pro-life. By the way, I'm fine. Call me whatever you want, right? I, yeah. I, genu- I genuinely don't care what people call me. But yeah. I'm fine with anti-abortion. When people would say, you know, I, I, I would prefer to be called pro-life versus anti-abortion. I'm fine with anti-abortion. I'm fine with anti-slavery. I'm fine with anti-murder. I'm fine with anti-rape. And I'm fine with anti-abortion. If you want to say that he's just against abortion, Sure. Fine. I am. I mean, there's no lie there. There's nothing deceitful about it. I do think abortion's awful and I want it ended. I want it ended correctly as best as we can. by All the means you just said, the three pronged approach. I want to reach the people who feel like they have to get an abortion and give them alternatives. But we do have to recognize, as we already have, that our alternatives will always cost us more and not just resources as far as of of the money we have to invest or the in-kind gifts that we have to gather. It's also resources that we just have to care about other human beings more than we do today. We have to be a little more dirty in how we interact with our neighbor. And as an introvert, I realize I'm calling the world to something. This sounds horrifying to me. <laughs> I'm gonna be asked to, to have to be more involved in the lives of the people around me, but that's better. It's a better answer than the one that we have today. And it will produce something better for everybody involved in it. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I like the idea of normalizing anti-abortion because it, I, I see it, by the way, one of the, you and I've talked already. One of the things I, I'm trying to get done is to have a segment on one of the shows where I have students join me in a room so that we can have the students and I can talk to them and ask what's going on and get questions from them. I've already talked to one student group with my, my kids are involved with up at Kennesaw State University, and I'm trying to get it set up so we can talk to them. But one of the things that's fascinating to me when I talk to more conservative students on a university that's in our area, which is used to be much more conservative than it is now, is the sense in which they are pressured to not share views against abortion, that they yeah. feel a community pressure from people mm-hmm. around to the point that when one of my one, my, one of my children has a teacher, a professor, who, who is very open about the sense of, look, I am pro-choice, but this is a safe space for anybody to share whatever they want, and I will protect that. And he talks about how much he values that professor because the others mm-hmm. aren't doing that. They're allowing a right. culture of intimidation, shut up, right. be quiet. Um, they say uh, awful things. And, and, and my, my, one of my children is more outspoken than, than the other. Uh, and they're both, by the way, neither one of them would cower from, from confrontation, but one of them is, is just more out there and, and more willing to take people on with, with less prov- provocation than the other one. So, so I, I think <laughs> but that- that's so common, Jay, like all of the, so we have 26 college groups that we work with here in Michigan and they all have that same feeling of being silenced or like, mm-hmm. you know, if they speak out about no, I don't think this is an acceptable solution to an unplanned pregnancy, that they will be ostracized and othered and and silenced by their peers for that. 
we have to break out of that because this cannot be this weird secret belief that we all have behind the scenes. We're trying to end an injustice that's taking over 2000 lives every single day in our country. Hmm. We can't do that if we're afraid to say we're against it. And we can and- find being hated. We have to be right. fine being hated. It's okay. I talked about that before you come on a little bit. The idea that it's not the worst thing in the world for somebody to hate you as long as they hate you for good reasons, right? If you hate me because I think every human being ought to be treated with dignity and respect, we're good. We're good. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with right. that, all right? And I, uh, and I think that's what we're trying to do through how we train people to have these conversations is like share the truth and love in a winsome way. Like what you're fighting for is a better world that doesn't accept violence as a solution to problems. You should absolutely wear that on your sleeve and be proud of it. Put the sticker on your laptop, put the pro-life t-shirt on. Like we have to That's right. We have to normalize instead of it being this thing that we're afraid to say because it comes with all these other okay so then you're you're a conservative or you're a religious fundamentalist or whatever i am building a movement of people who are trying to break that mold and say that all of us no matter our backgrounds or beliefs should reject the violence of abortion and fight for a better world where we don't tolerate killing. Uh, that's not really that controversial. <laughs> and it's going to bleed over, right? That's one of the things I right. tell people. I was in I was in Waco, Texas, and these this young woman came up to me and she was asking, why, why do you care so much? I had that a lot, right? A lot of questions. Why do you care so much about this? Why is this such a big deal? I was like, well, first of all, all the reasons I just gave in my talk are the reason it's a big deal, right? To start off, the last hour of my talk and Q&A should answer that question a little bit. But if in case you're wondering... Here's another problem. Once we accept death as a solution anywhere, we start to use it elsewhere. It, yeah. It's always going to expand the number of people and lives that we think we're justified in killing. The people who yeah. embrace the idea that there is a category of human beings that don't matter, a category of human life that we are free to dispose of when they're inconvenient, those people always multiply those other human beings that they're willing to, they never stay behind that line. You set them a yeah. line and you say, okay, we'll, we'll compromise. We'll be nice. We'll let you have that one. They will always push it to somewhere else. They'll always find another group of human that. beings. Yeah, yeah. Across the board, right? Everywhere we look, yeah. we're seeing the desensitization of, of the loss of human life and the willingness to use destruction of human life or the, the letting of it go or however they want to parse those words out as a means of getting a better world. I agree with you. We're fighting for a better world for everybody. And it's a little uglier for us all as far as how it's gonna intrude upon our lives a little bit more, but that's good because we never should have lost that to begin with. We should have always been more involved with our community than we have become at this point. Yeah, and I just wanna give people hope for anyone listening or watching that this message is winsome. You know, the other side isn't willing to face the reality of abortion. They're trying to hide it under bumper sticker slogans. Whereas we have the reality of how bad the injustice is. You know, I always say like abortion is wrong because it's taking the most valuable thing from the most vulnerable victim at an Mm. alarming rate. We have all of this truth and we're fighting for a better world, real solutions, nonviolent support. That is so much more attractive to the people around us than what the other side 
is selling. Keep people in cycles of poverty by selling them abortions and don't actually fix the problem. You know, use use violence and oppression to further. Nobody wants that at their core. They really don't. So what we're fighting for is so much more attractive to the world around us. And I don't want anyone to believe the lie that it's not, that it's weird to be pro-life or it's unpopular. In some cases, it's going to be. But I think if we continue to share the truth in a really winsome and strategic and loving way, we are going to see advances. I saw it on over a thousand doors that I knocked personally talking to individuals who were pro-choice and became more pro-life in even a five-minute conversation. And, and the people watching and listening today can do that same thing. Just be a good person and don't be afraid to share yeah. what you believe. Yeah. And, 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 and be proud, right? Be proud of it. Yeah. Don't, you said, don't be afraid of it. Be proud of it. Be willing to yeah. say, I, and you'll, you'll, you'll always find out that there's a larger group of people than you thought that agree with you. Once somebody right. is willing to say, yeah, I don't, I don't go, I don't agree with that. I don't go there. I'm yeah. not, that's not my viewpoint. So did we cover yeah. all three of your points? I know we had the first two. Did we get to the third one yet? I just want people to have hope. You know, I don't know uh, what state, Somebody lives in here in Michigan, we just had an enormous loss and it's taken quite a while to overcome that. You know, there's been a lot of grieving that Trevor and I and our team at Protect Life Michigan have done. Um, but no matter where you live, like, don't think that this battle is lost because we lose one vote or because there's, you know, some piece of legislation that have ad has advanced. We have every reason to have hope. And my buddy, Jonathan Van Maren from the Canadian Center for Bio Bioethical Reform uh, pointed this out to me in a really powerful way. He said, you know, it's really, if you look back at these fights against injustice throughout history, in so many cases, there was this impossibility of victory and yet somehow good still won out. And, you know, you talked earlier about William Wilberforce and the fight that they had there that was won in just a mere matter of decades over something that was far more ingrained into society than abortion has ever been. Yeah. Slavery was as accepted as death throughout every culture, um, throughout all of human history. And yet they were able to end, you know, this legalized practice there. That gives me great hope for our country. Here in Michigan, we just suffered an enormous loss, but it was one vote. And it yeah. did just extend the battle into the future, but it doesn't reflect where the people of the state actually stand. And we're going to work hard to prove um, to our state and our country that we can do better than this and we have to fight for a better world. And I just, my, my whole message and my focus, um, this, the first part of this year is just trying to help people see um, as these constitutional amendments wait, make their way across the country, it does not mean the battle is over. I thank God that in 1973, when Roe v. Wade was handed down, that the pro-life leaders in that moment didn't give up and say, well, it's a constitutional right now, let's pack it up and go home. They yeah. stood firm, they fought, they built a bigger and stronger movement. And now in Michigan, we have a responsibility to do that same thing. There's a hesitant, I think a hesitancy and a tendency to give up when we face a loss and we can't, we need to be louder and stronger and bigger in 2023 than in any year before to show we are not going to 
pack it up and go home so long as innocent lives are being taken by abortion. And, and, and here's the thing, and you're right, you have, in a, in a political battle of this magnitude, there's going to be ebb and flows as you move things, as you get, and so we had a, a huge victory in Roe v. Wade, and, and don't miss all the states that have been, the trigger laws hit that have now have restrictive right. laws. Those are huge victories. Yeah. But you knew yeah. there was also going to be a sort of move back to the other side a little bit as people got afraid, as they got afraid. Because yeah. Ross Dothout is right and, and when he talks about the New York Times, and I've written about this both at LTI and Merely Human Ministries in a blog post where I talked about there was no good old days. There is no time in the past where we were doing this right. There's nowhere for us to look and say, oh, well, we were right then, so let's get back to doing what we were doing then. What we're asking for is a better world than has existed. We're a world, as you were talking about with slavery, right? Slavery just was the way the world was, and now it's not. And, and, and it was a better world that we fight slavery in. And so what we're looking for is a world that hasn't existed before. And so we have to recognize that anytime you ask people to go into something new, there's some trepidation and fear because they don't know what we're asking them to do. They don't know how it's going to impact everything or how it's going to change everything. And so as we say, look, we're calling in something new here. Calling that something in new is going to cause some, some fear. So it's going to take some a little while to win them over and convince them. But here's one of the things that, and I'll end on this and I'll give you the last word. Because as we talk about, we're not going to lose hope. We're not going to quit. What, what does quitting look like? How would we even do that, right? Well, one of the things that I think is fascinating, one of my favorite parts of the Bible is when Jesus teaches this crowd. He's got a gathering, a following now. And he teaches on the Lord's Supper and eating of his body uh, and drinking of his blood. And it freaks everybody out. And, and they finally built this, this group, this community, and they all just leave. Right? They're like, that was a weird teaching. That was strange. <laughs> He's talking about eating his body and drinking his blood. We are out. We are out of here. And they leave. And the, the, the 12 are still there. And he looks at Peter and he says, you don't want to go too? And Peter's response is one of my favorite responses ever because it, it is so human. Coming back to human things, right? Such a human response. He says, where am I going to go? I, I think I believe you're the Lord. Right? I, I don't get what you said. I don't like what you said. It basically is what he's saying to Jesus. I'm not happy about what just happened because we had a nice group and now you've lost it and we're back down to the 12. I don't like anything of what just happened, but what's the alternative? And yeah. so when we say we can't, we can't lose hope, it's like, okay, what, 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 is, what is our alternative? When we lose, we have to keep fighting because abortion yeah, and, is exactly what we say it is. And that is, that's the sense that I want every person in this fight to feel. We talk about that all the time at Protect Life Michigan. Like we have so been exposed to the violence of abortion and the suffering of the, its victims that it has changed our lives and the way that we live. And I can't ever go back to a normal life. I can't pretend that I don't know and allow this to happen around me. I have to be a part of the movement to end the injustice. Yeah. And that is what we're trying to give to every student that we work with as well, that they have, they're changed at their core by what they've seen and experienced and know that they have to commit in some way their lives to fighting yes. this. And, and I hope that as many people as possible will get to that point where they're heartbroken over what's happened and will commit themselves to doing their own part, whatever it is, to fight the injustice. That's right. Live your life, but this has to be a part of it. 
If, if, yeah. if you believe in the value of human life, if you believe all human beings ought to be treated with dignity and respect, if you believe in equality, if you believe in all of those things and the equal dignity of human beings, live your life. But a part of living your life has to be to say when something wrong is happening that that's wrong and to point to a better world for all of us. We just, we can't escape it. We have to do something. Yeah, all right, right. Well, Kristen, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and for being our guest. Thank you. I only uh, wish we were eating a huge thing of cosmic fries. Oh my gosh. I know, man. I need, I need that. I got to find some excuse to get back. back up into Michigan so that I can eat I can, that. So, I can find one. All right. Yeah. We, we, we got to do that again. Soon. It is, it is a felt need in my life. I, I, there's, you know, it recurs. I'll tell my wife, like, these are good, but they're not. What I, I want to drive her up there just so she can experience it as well. Because I, this like episode is sponsored by Hopcat. Yeah, I'm sure they would love that. <laughs> right? Like, no, no, no. Um, yeah, if you if you like this content, merelyhumanministries.org and help support us. What uh, website for you guys? Protectlifemi.org. Even if you're not in Michigan, go follow us. You'll be so encouraged by the stories that. We share from campus, protectlifemi.org. I, I appreciate you. You and Trevor, my heroes for what you guys have been doing, man. Uh, and thank you. you. You're going to come on again. You're going to come on again. <laughs> Sounds good. I look forward to it.